Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What's the home tap you're in at the moment? Uh, well, I, I, we sort of built a shed in the garden ages ago. Um, just, just because our old, we had an old shed that was falling down and was uh, leaking and uninsulated and stuff, so we thought we'd better build something that we could actually store stuff in without it going rusty or mouldy. Um, so we built a nice little shed in the garden, and then during lockdown, I sort of turned it into a music room, which then became a studio. So, um, and it was great. It was sort of I needed something because I was working on my own. I needed a more sort of domestic setup where I could. Uh, Press play from the drum kit, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> all my other studios have like a separate live room or are too big, you know. So it's like, um, so it was, uh, yeah. So it just sort of blossomed into a little, into a nice little space. Um, but it's being, it's gradually being turned back into more of a sort of music room rather than a working studio or a writing room, should we say? I have been mixing in here over lockdown, but I think I'll go back to mixing in my main studio was that your kind of main bread and butter over lockdown doing mixing stuff um no actually lockdown was weirdly was sort of looking back on it it was it was really interesting i sort of started off doing finishing off a bunch of mixing um for i did a record with um juanita stein and that was we'd finished recording before lockdown and actually done most of the mixing so the first thing i did was do did a bunch of recalls on that and then they sort of blossomed into something a bit more than recalls just because we had more time um because a lot of other stuff had been cancelled because at the beginning of lockdown we just before lockdown we had started um the live cycle for Nadine's album for Kitchen Sink um, and we'd done a couple of gigs at the Six Music Festival and then everything got locked down about a week later um, so and the first thing that got cancelled was we were going to go into rehearsals setting up the new show so we'd sort of done a couple of gigs where we where we'd 
put a couple of the of the new songs into our old set and then the plan was that we change the change the personnel a little bit because we had a different it's a different setup for the for the last album um so we're just about to start rehearsing that and uh <laughs> that all got cancelled yeah it was it was it was a, a bit uh, yeah it's a, a bit of a shocker but we it meant it meant that you know you just change and do other things don't you? so we we uh it meant i got more time finishing Juanita's record which was great uh so i was very happy with how that turned out and then i sort of did um then I thought, well, instead of doing live shows, what I can do is make some videos for Nadine to sing on for Kitchen Sink. Because when we made that record, generally the way we work on um, recording Nadine stuff is is I I write the majority of the music and Nadine writes all the lyrics and the melody lines. So. Um, and the songs sort of fall into two categories. There's ones that I start as instrumentals and send to her, and she and she will um, write a top line on, and then we'll we'll you know adjust the the arrangement and the parts. We usually completely rewrite the music to fit the top line, or she will write a f- uh, a fairly simple demo. Um, with, um, with the with the top line on it and then i will rewrite the music to that so with this sort of 50 50 who starts the songs uh, but they all go through the same process but what usually happens is it usually ends up with me playing all the parts in the studio um that's just something i've sort of taught myself to do over the duration of working with nadine over the last 10 or 12 yeah, four years. records now then isn't it um, yeah, 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 yeah. The last album's the fourth album. Yeah, which is great. It's, it's great to be able to do that many records together. And I didn't really write before I. So I never sort of officially saw myself as a writer before I started working with Nadine. I'd not. I'd done. I'd had obviously had input into people's records as a producer, which is a bit sort of righty. <laughs> but generally, chucking a middle eight in there. Yeah, exactly. It's usually it usually is like sort of the middle eight out, and um, um, or just sort of change the baseline in the chorus to make the chords work better, or something like that. Um, so actually, building stuff from scratch was something I'd never really done seriously. I'd like messed around with it, but never done it in anger. I just sort of taught myself over the last ten years to play all the instruments just because it was quicker for me to do it rather than try to explain to somebody else <laughs> how I wanted it. Um, so, um, yeah, so I've sort of, so on the last record, the majority of stuff on the record was stuff that I played or I then got, or if it was stuff that was slightly more complicated, I would get a good musician to come in and play it for me. Um, but I would always play the, the basic part. Um, so at the beginning of lockdown, I thought, well, I'll just sit down and film myself playing all the different parts and uh, and edit it together into a video and then Nadine can film herself singing it and we'll have a sort of a live video <laughs> yeah remote live <laughs> yeah it was just in, but it, I, didn't, I didn't really think it through properly because it was incredibly difficult to play each part all the way through and film it and record yourself without making any mistakes <laughs> the first one took me about a week <laughs> <laughs> and um but i got there in the end so uh, but i did about five of the songs i think um and uh and found this little video editing editing software the way you can do sort of split screen you know multi-screen things and um and so you could so i could film myself playing each part 
and then edit it all together and send it to Nadine and she would uh, and she would do the vocal over the top and we'd put that in so um, there's a few of those floating around on YouTube I think um, but that was quite good fun so that that kept me busy at the beginning of lockdown that and mixing and then um, I did various bits of writing uh, with with various people um, to sort of I did a track with Annabelle Allen which was good fun I did a, we did a uh, we started a sort of uh, sort of almost like a sort of self-help crap rock group <laughs> <laughs> that's not a group of words I thought I would have heard together <laughs> <laughs> which was great so it was just like a bunch of because um, as well as having my little studio at home now I've got when I first moved out of London about seven years ago one of the reasons for moving out was because I wanted a bigger studio um which sounds a bit weird because I've got a massive studio in London but I don't get to work in it very often. <laughs> is that the pool? Uh, the pool, yeah. Which yeah, just, yeah. Uh, so that was, I think that's about 15 years old now. Something like that. Um, a lot of bands have but, gone through it. Yeah, loads. Yeah, it's great. I love seeing how many bands go through there. It's absolutely fantastic. And I love, because that, that was born out of a thing where I'd got to a point where I was doing about, I was living in London and spending about 10 months of the year outside London just because I was working with with bands all over the place and a lot of it we'd done, it sort of started with Blur where we did, they wanted to work in Marrakesh, Damon particularly wanted to work in Marrakesh for a while. So we, I just put a studio together with a hire company called Tickle and we took it all, we found a, found a venue in Marrakesh and took it out there and set it up in, the, in this sort of abandoned farmhouse on the edge of Marrakesh for six weeks. Um, wow which was really exciting it was really good fun and it was it was just like we were, it was all very seat of your pants we were just like yeah we'll do that that'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of almost wasn't but we got the um uh and then that studio became a sort of not a mobile studio but a movable studio um so we could take that and set it up in different places so we did i did a record with doves up in scotland up in um at Fort Augustus at the other end of um it's on the west coast right uh, well it's sort of it's the the other end of Loch Ness from from Inverness ah okay so I know like where you are the sort of southern end of Loch Ness I guess yeah um an amazing place there's a, and there's this big old um this, this big old monastery up there which was um, um, which all the monks like the monks had kind of died off they weren't really, there weren't enough monks left to live in it so they so they abandoned and I don't know, moved to a smaller one. I don't know what, what, monk, what monks do in those situations, but they uh, they they'd moved on. Um, we um, but we weren't actually in the monastery. We were in an old school, which was um, just up the hill, which is a sort of almost derelict, but not quite derelict enough for us to uh, not mind putting a whole studio in there. How did you uh, find that? Uh, I think that was through a friend. One of the guys at Tickle, a guy called Tad at Tickle, was was quite um he was quite good at sort of sourcing these places he sort of knew somebody up there or something um, almost like location scouting yeah 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 so he'd found that and we went up there and worked up there i think we were up there for like eight or ten weeks it was great we had a really good experience up there so um, um and it was all through the summer but it was a terrible summer um it was like raining nearly every day and then um so we were sort of moaning about the weather and then it got to the last week and it stopped raining and we we're like oh great it stopped raining and the midges <laughs> were so bad they were like bring the rain back <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite funny it was a really good time we enjoyed it a lot and uh um 
and then that studio then we then set it up again in Scarborough in a, near Scarborough in a farm in Yorkshire um, and we did um, and I did a Future Heads record there is that their debut? no it was the second album the second one the, the poorly received second album <laughs> 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 but um I, I, I still, I'm still, still really like that record, but it was, it was maybe a little short on songs, but it was a, a but it was a, it was a good. That was a great studio, actually, that one, because it was this, it was this farmyard, it was this whole farm on the York in the Yorkshire Wolds, I think it was. So it was near Scarborough, quite high up, um, on these sort of chalk downlands, and they they had it was a lovely old farmhouse. Um, with plenty of space, you know, lots of bedrooms and stuff. And then all these had a sort of courtyard of barns that we could use. And this, the acoustic spaces we had were brilliant. So we had like this massive barn with, where the walls were all chalk, which of course has a, is great acoustically. Chalk just sort of soaks up top end. Um, so it had this enormous drum sound in it, um, but, but really, really warm and massive and then it had um and then we had um a couple of other barns that we could use for like sort of amps and stuff like that and then then we had a greenhouse we tried but we, we ended up recording all the guitar amps in a greenhouse because <laughs> <laughs> it was just the perfect acoustic for guitar amps it was sort of because all the low end went disappeared out through the walls and the only thing that reflected was top end so you got these amazing sort of bright so you could get sort of a bright clattery guitar sound but it'd be really focused in the mid-range and the low end perfect um yeah. will you test for that acoustically before you go to a location like that no you have to you just have to deal with what you're given because you couldn't we couldn't sort of we didn't have there weren't enough places there weren't enough options so we would um if i'd gone and said no nah, there's not the, the acoustics aren't good enough we would have been um we would have been without anyway so we you you make the most of what you have so the the place in with that we went with in scotland with doves was didn't have great acoustics but it had good enough you know we had it had stuff we could do and then we also found we managed to blag our way into the into the the um the cathedral or the abbey i think it was at the monastery where <laughs> which was really bizarre. They'd emptied out this abbey. It was a massive abbey. It was about the size of Salisbury Cathedral. It was huge. And it had had like a 40-second reverb or something. And they'd, and they'd taken all the pews out. They'd sort of decommissioned it, you know. So like, and so they'd taken all the pews out and all the, anything churchy had gone, apart from one pulpit or something. And um, But it was just this massive space. And we, we recorded one track in there. Um, so the last track on that um, on that Some Cities album um, was recorded in that space, um, and we, we just used the acoustic for it. It was amazing. Um, so it's sort of you. It's, it's quite it's quite a good fun doing that. You can sort of I love hunting out a, a good acoustic acoustic that you can use for one thing, you know, um, and and playing to that acoustic. How did that all lead into the pool then? I think that's where we so, kind of started off. Oh with yeah, that sorry, yeah, I'm rambling wildly. <laughs> so um, yeah, so basically we got to the we we got to the point where we'd done all I'd done all these remote sessions and they would get and I just I'd I was getting older and I sort of wanted to be at home a bit more, wanted to enjoy being in London, not spending so much time on trains and um, and 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 I sort of I didn't really. A, I couldn't afford many studios in London. All the studios I could afford in London were not 
anywhere near what we were using on these remote studios. And then the more expensive studios, I found them a bit sort of corporate and a bit, um, a bit soulless. Yeah, well, this the idea that you'd turn up at a studio and they wouldn't have any instruments always bothered me. So you'd go somewhere and there'd be, you know, you'd pay a fortune to go to townhouse and you'd sort of say, have you got a guitar? And it's like, you'd have to hire it. Or if, you know, there, there, there might be a piano, but nothing else. And it'd be, it's, that's not, because they should be places for making music, not places for um, plugging microphones in. That should be secondary in my, my view. Um, so That's the, a good quote. Well, you need that thing. You need instruments, don't you? You can't make music without instruments. So um, you want to be able to go in and just pick something up and yeah, and I'd be feel working, creative. Totally, and I'd done quite a lot of work in America by this point, and, and every studio I'd been to in America was run by some sort of maverick musician who'd who'd basically made the studio out of a collection of all their stuff, and they had all these crazy instruments lying around, half of which didn't work but looked cool, and and you could sort of and a lot of the sounds that you were getting on records were like you'd pick up some old thing that was lying in the corner and it would only play three notes but though you'd make that work and that would become a really cool sound on the record and then you contrast that with you know and these places were all maybe a bit messy and a bit scrabby but they technically they were great and they had all this sort of random inspiration lying around and then you, you contrast that with working in in a sort of you know whitfield street or or an, an air or an abbey road and just like this this is just like being in an office block i had all that stuff and so i was like well i'll just set up a studio in london and we we spent ages trying to find a space to set it up it was really hard at that point because everywhere in london was getting really expensive the orinoco studios had been bought by milo music would and had become so Orinoco studio set up in the 80s i think and i i worked there a bit in, um, through the sort of 90s it had been taken over by new management which became my loco um, and then they had this massive space there which was originally built as a as a soundstage like a blue room for video and for fo- photography stuff and it had a, an infinity curve at the back and you could drive a car in and do a video shoot with a car and stuff like that so it's a big old space um, but it, they built it in Bermondsey thinking that they could get people from Soho because all that all that work was based in Soho and so they built it fairly close to Soho thinking they could get people in from Soho to come come down there but they they hadn't really budgeted for the fact that people from Soho wouldn't go south of the river wouldn't go south of the Thames to work so <laughs> it was just empty uh, and then when the loco took it over they didn't really know anyone in that in that field because they were just a recording studio so they 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 just used it for storage um, so eventually after much negotiation we agreed that I could put a studio in there and we set it up so I had all this gear that I'd collected doing all these remote studios and I bought a mixing desk uh, like you do on eBay <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, um, and we set up this studio and it was all in all in one room so it was a massive room and the acoustic in there just happened to be perfect because it was a big open space with a really with a weirdly tight acoustic so you could get distance on microphones but the spill was almost non-existent so you could have two instruments set up next to each other and record them and the spill is is totally manageable so it's the uh, um and then that sort of developed into the pool so um it started off with uh, just my sort of control room set up in the corner of this big room and everybody worked in the room like it was a rehearsal room. Uh, and if the band on headphones, then we were on headphones, me and the engineer would be on headphones. And if, you know, and if we were playing back, everyone could hear it and stuff. 
stuff like that. So it was, it was a great, creative, open, inclusive music making space. But it was only me and Paul Epworth that could cope with working in there. So me and Paul used to share it, basically. Like he would come in with his projects. And so he'd be sort of coming in and doing Adele and, and uh, Florence and stuff like that and all these all these sort of massive projects and I'd be in there with some odd indie band doing other things and um, and then it became it got more and more popular when Paul and I kept it busy and then a few other producers would come in and then it got to the point where it was like where Maloko was saying we, really, we have to put a control room in here because then we can just sell it to everyone so um, they, they and it's their building so I was like oh alright then <laughs> if you insist um, so they put a control room in and for a while I, I insisted the control room was movable so we could actually so for my sessions and for Paul's sessions we used to take the whole control room out of this room that they built for a control room and put it back in the live room <laughs> and it was great because that was that was like when it was at its ultimate because it meant that you had this big live that the big live room was the control room and the whole band could be in there but you also had a couple of booths as well so you could put you could hide things away so that was the ultimate for me that i loved it when it was like that um we uh, used to do that with depeche mode as well didn't you you would like build a control room within the live space yeah yeah i mean they were that was more i mean it was fundamentally the same thing it was it was it was because they as you would hope they they have a lot of synths and and um they if you sit in a control room you're either constantly changing synths around and, and setting up a new one and taking it and having to take another one out of the way or um or you're trying to squeeze everybody into this small space and then you're all sort of crammed in this small space looking through a window a big empty room so it was sort of uh, it, it seemed to me to be a ridiculous idea so we 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 basically just got a desk and and set everything up and, and some speakers and set everything up in the live room um, and then we used the control room mainly for um, as a as a separate programming space or a space where Dave could do his vocal or do his you know work on vocals and things like that so it, was, it meant we could have two control rooms running and the main control room was actually in the live room because there was enough space for all the band and all the crew um, the studio crew and all the synths and it was and it was I love the thing where you basically set up a big um, creative sort of playroom where you have everything set up and you make a big noise and everyone can see what's going on and everyone can join in and I I really just like that thing where where studio recording is sort of separate separated from the performers and the control room and then you have this sort of con- studio trickery that goes on in the control room and all the and all the performers are somewhere else not seeing what's going on and I find that really weird <laughs> So I always go for the former. I always go for the make a space, have everyone in it, and and um, when we make a thing together. Do you feel like you have a, a better understanding of what's going on when you do that? Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's no. You can look at someone, and you can see. You know, you can, you can, uh, you have eye contact with people. If I, when, whenever I work in a room with a separate live room, I'm recording with a band. I'm always in the band, in the room with the band, and I have an engineer. You know, I've got an engineer. I've worked with for a long time who's really 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 great uh, Dan Crook um, who I completely trust to record everything he knows what I'm after and he's also very creative himself so so he'll be in the control room getting the sounds um, we'll discuss and go on you know ongoing discussions about how it should sound but I'll be in with the musicians I need to be in with them so that when they're playing I can sort of say yeah go to the chorus now or can you just change that or 
can you know or they can say to me what happens here or whatever it has to be it has to be a two-way communication it's not like i put I, I hate the idea where i hate the thing where you press a button and you go right do it again do this and you take your finger off and they have to do it <laughs> that that's that's just a complete anathema to me i don't understand how that works you know i don't understand how you can make how you can collaborate with someone over through that tiny little meet through that tiny little sort of communication line I, want, I need to be in the yeah it feels very old school like a producer behind the glass yeah and it kind of works if you've got a band who um, or you've worked with a band and rehearsed them up and you've decided everything before you go in the studio and this is how they play the song and that's the way it goes but it's very rare to have that in once you get to the studio and actually I like the flexibility of being able to get everyone in the studio and you might everything might change once you hear it through the speakers you need to be in communication with people you need to be able to move fast and you need to be nimble and, and, and adaptive in the way that you that you're making records and I need the band involved with the creative the, the the whole creative experience I need the band to be sitting in the room where we're doing stuff and go what happens if I press this button and they do it and you know and it might be totally the wrong totally the, technically the wrong thing to do but it sounds it might be the thing that sounds amazing so uh yeah, I don't like to remove them from that process. Yeah, it enables a more collaborative atmosphere. Totally. Yeah, because if I if they if I'm expecting them to respond to me telling them how to play their instruments, then I should be able to respond to them telling me what to do on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a two-way street. Totally. Absolutely. As someone you know who's been both a producer and a mixer which do you feel is more important in terms of allowing a record to feel cohesive or do they have different roles in that yeah they have different roles um i'd without hesitation i'll say it's production um but it's but that is production is the thing that will pull the record together and make a that is your job as a producer to have an oversight of the whole record um, or one of your jobs um, I think the the rise in the influence and the power of the mixer is purely down to um, modern recording situations uh, the fact that a lot of people can now make a record themselves on their laptops and it can be brilliant um, then the mixer steps in and can take that and make it and can take what's brilliant about it and make it presentable to the world that's a great that's a really important job but that's that's quite a new scenario because you know previous pre daws pre a working digital audio workstation it was if you were going to do that then you were kind of mixing a four track which wasn't unheard of but it was definitely not ideal so i feel that the mix the rise of the mixer is is a fairly modern thing and the biggest problem I have with it is quite often it's too late in the process. I've, I've mixed quite a few projects where I've just wished that I'd been involved earlier because then the mix would be much easier. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, you can hear what they're trying to do and, the, and, um, and a lot of the mixing is dealing with, with the limitations of the recording where actually... If you'd be, if you'd had a producer involved at an earlier stage, then that, then those limitations wouldn't exist, theoretically. Um, what, what sort of limitations? What would you change? Um, just things like 
being uh, getting the better be- getting a better performance getting people to do stuff more from a um, from a performance point of view rather than a, an editing point of view the hardest thing with a with a, with an artist recording a lot of stuff themselves on a laptop is it can be fantastic when they're performing well but it really falls down when they get dragged they sort of inevitably get dragged into the into the digital chopping and cutting and pasting um, because you think well you can play this really well actually what you need to do rather than because people get you know I'm as guilty of it as anybody else you get quite attached to a performance of and it might be the first performance of something something like that uh, and then you sort of think well I don't need to do that again I'll just loop it or cut it and paste it and do that and then and some things that is really that works really well and some things it's just the wrong thing to do and as a producer it's your job to kind of you should be able to see or you 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 can make people try things again and do it again and perform again uh, whereas if you're presented it as a mixer it's quite hard to send it back to them and say this is great but can you play the bass all the way through rather than just this loop because I think it would be much better <laughs> it just feels false yeah it can yeah it's yeah it can, sometimes it can feel limited I mean it's that thing isn't it a loop sometimes is perfect but a um but sometimes it, you want it to move in places. Or, or actually, my my pet hate is an over-edited performance. I'd rather have a few mistakes and stuff, and stuff move around and stuff be looser than it be than everything be edited onto the grid. I'm a big hater of the grid. I don't like the grid. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather something because I just I don't want to be told where the groove is by Pro Tools. You know, I want I want somebody to play it. And I've seen that with so many bands. You go and play, you go and see, a, you hear a record which which you're quite into and you think is great and the songs are brilliant. And you go and see the band play live and it's just another level because they're playing, because they've recorded everything themselves and then they've, and then sort of, because they feel they ought to, they have quantized everything or done something like that. And they've just lost so much information by quantizing it. And you see the band play live, and you're like, "What? That groove is amazing!" But it's not on your record because the groove on your record is what Pro Tools thinks is the groove. Yeah, it's almost too clean, too perfect. Yeah, yeah, and it's. it's I, I mean, I'm I'm completely boring and anal about these things as well. I mean, I with I, I spent a long time in the '90s editing drums for people. <laughs> That was my job for a very long before I started producing. I used to do, I used to engineer and I used to program for people. And I was, I was quite, uh, it's quite early in the days of Pro Tools. And I could, and I got a reputation for being able to make Pro Tools work with tape and things like that. And so I spent, so I was called upon to do a lot of quantizing and sample replacing and things like that. And I used to hate it because it was always, it always came to the point where it was done visually. So people would be look, they'd be like that bar feels a bit weird. Show me the grid, and you show them the grid. And like, oh yeah, that hi hat needs to be a bit off, and then you could sort of like. So we we're sort of moving everything to these lines on Pro Tools, and that was the thing that determined whether it was in time or not, rather than. People who are listening to it can't see that though. No, exactly. But then they would, if they felt something was wrong. So what I would say, say is like, okay, show me a bar that you like. So this this bar here would feel good, and so I'd actually cut and paste the kick and the snare off that bar onto, onto a couple of parallel tracks and then quantize the groove to that rather than quantize it to the 
bar to, to the lines because then it would feel the same as the good bar rather than it feeling the same as Pro Tools, if that makes sense. I think, you know, I would, I would find a bar of the performance that was, that people liked and then use that as my grid rather than a Pro Tools grid. But then of course, Beat Detective came along and um, it was much easier for Beat Detective to do it for you. And, uh, and, Beat, and Beat Detective, you could do that on Beat Detective, but people didn't. <laughs> it was, <laughs> they just went, yeah, quantize, go. And, um, and there was a lot of records in the 90s and the early noughties where they all had the same feel and it was absolutely awful. It was, um, whereas I got much more into, I would like to find a bar that felt really good and use that as my, as my template for for um, the whole song or if we were using a drum machine I would use I would fire uh, for instance with Depeche Mode we a lot of what we did getting the feel right on songs would we would try different drum machines um, to play the part rather than just program it in Logic because the, um, the feel of a drum machine in Logic is, is really kind of stiff and unyielding whereas of the feel of and quite often you might be using 808 sounds or something like that so so we'd get an eight i mean we had the luxury of being able to say let's get an 808 and we'd and we'd program it on an 808 and it would feel completely different but way better or we'd program it on an mpc or or a um whatever drum machines we could because each one would have a different feel and then we'd try and we'd do the same with sequences we'd have we'd program if there was a sequence part rather than running it on midi we'd run it on analog sequences and find and we had a few choices and each one would have a slightly different feel and so you'd find one then you'd jam sync it to get the to get the groove right so we'd spend a lot of time getting the thing to sit just right and um and that would that would be way more creative than um, just putting it in time in Pro Tools or Logic. <laughs> yeah, it's just about finding ways that make it feel more unique to the band. Yeah, exactly. And you get the sound that would be... So the so it wouldn't just be relying on the sonics, you'd be relying on the timing and the feel of it to get, to get the feel of the song. It's like that Blur record as well. You've got the whole kind of jam band type thing going on where you get that sensation of people playing together in a room. Yeah, totally. Was that's where it came from? That record was all jammed. Really, we it was uh, um, nearly every recording on that record was probably the first time they played the song, and usually without any structure. So something like "Out of Time" was a that that song came from. Damon had a the verse melody, and he had the phrase "Out of Time," um, and he had the first lyric, the "Where's the Love Song." I think and basically we sat them down and they were there was a few things that we were trying to do that so Dave Rowntree didn't want to play a straight drum kit on anything because he kind of done that and he got limited by that so we were so we were finding different ways of getting him to play we were getting him to play slightly different instruments and things like that so the so the drums on that track are this big old marching bass drum um, and I wanted to limit how many bass drums he could play. So every time he hit it, it was really resonant. Every time he hit it, it lasted for about a bar. <laughs> so I was like, there you go, there's your bass drum. But if you play it too much, you won't be able to hear anything. Like, right, okay. And then the the ride cymbal was a um, this massive gong <laughs> that we had. And it didn't have a hole in the middle because it was a gong. Um, so it was sort of leaning on a on on a 
on like a tom tom stand with a load of load of uh, tea towels wrapped around it, and the uh, and the assistant was holding onto it so it didn't fall off. Um, and um, and again, that was a really weird sound. So he hit it in the wrong place; it didn't make any noise at all because of the way it was mounted. And so he was sort of. And then the and then the snare drum was this really high pitched sort of djembe drum that um, that he was hitting, and so just putting him in that sort of slightly awkward place meant that he had to play a groove in a certain way. Um, and then Alex was playing a bass guitar going through my ARP with, that was ridiculously distorted. And then the filter was brought down so that this is so that you didn't get any, you couldn't really hear the distortion artifacts. You just heard the, the low end. But if you played a note, it didn't stop until you stopped it. There was no envelope. If you like, you had full control over the envelope. There was no, um, because of the level of distortion and then Damon was just playing acoustic guitar and vocal I think it was, I think it was acoustic it might, yeah um, might, yeah I think you're right yeah and um, and they and they basically jammed it for about 40 minutes they just played that for 40 minutes round and round randomly and as they did it they were getting each of them were learning different bits and the song was taking shape and the chords were kind of settling into certain parts and damon was singing at the same time and then to get the structure i took that recording and essentially comped the vocal into a song with all the tracks underneath linked so i linked the drums the bass and the guitar with the vocal and i comped the vocal so that the vocal was really good and the music below was whatever happened to be below it and that's how we got the song <laughs> um, almost like sculpting it out of ice yeah yeah and it was sort of so it was all this sort of like because there was some just amazing stuff that Damon was doing vocally and every time he did that the band the other guys were just responding to it so every time he sang something really good they played really well because they were playing as a group and um, um, and they were all listening they're, they're great at playing together and um so basically about 40 minutes of playing and about two or three hours of editing made this song and then we uh, which was great and then it was so, and then the battle after that was to complete the song without losing the vibe of that original version so most of the lyrics were just garbled sounds um, because he because we hadn't written the song at that point you know, damon hadn't had a chance to write the lyrics he had a few phrases we knew where the key phrases were but then the Damon and I, when we because we record, we actually recorded that in Damon's sort of um, project studio before his old one, the old thirteen, um, up in Kendall Rise, and um, Labrick Grove sort of area, which is essentially like a little industrial unit. <laughs> he put a studio in, um, and the drums were in the kitchen and stuff like that. So, so. and then we went to Marrakesh and we spent. Um, we'd done a couple of overdubs on it. In, in London um, just to make once we'd done the edit just to kind of make it more complete and when, when we got to Marrakesh we we wanted to put, we had a um, a Moroccan orchestra come in that was called an Andalusian orchestra and they came in and they and we had a lot of discussion with them before we went out in, in an incredibly confusing manner saying you know how we wanted to get them to play on some stuff and they're like yeah brilliant brilliant you just um, we were saying well do you want us to arrange stuff for you do we need to get a string arranger to write out parts for you they're like no 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 we don't write our parts you just tell us what the key is um and then we'll play what we play in that key at the same speed as your song they're like right so you'll just play your thing <laughs> and we'll record you like yep that's what we do it's like okay 
so we have no control over this tool. Like, no, you just <laughs> you get what you're given. It's like, All right, embrace the chaos. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. And so they turned up, and they were amazing. There was about twenty of them, and they were fantastic musicians. And um, and we had this big old like reverberant concrete sort of derelict farmhouse that was and we had a had about 10 second reverb time in the control room <laughs> and, um, and they were set up in this sort of covered courtyard next to the control room and um so we had it really quiet in the control room and i was sort of trying to send them you know i was getting up a headphone mix and stuff like that and had all the mics up and when they play yeah you know, i hit play and they just sort of joined in so it's like, oh great i'll record this and they just joined in and they got and we got all the way through and they were playing stuff and we were sitting in the control and this is amazing this sounds fantastic and everything they were playing was following the music really well it's like because we were expecting absolute chaos but it turned out this they were playing stuff was just like brilliant um and we got to the end of the take and we were like that was amazing and they're like great should we do a take and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we haven't got it in our headphones. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what they were playing to. They must have been able to hear some... There, was, there wasn't really a window between the control room and the live room, but, but they, they must have been able to hear a little bit of something just spilling through. And, they, and, uh, and, and whatever, they, whenever they played with the headphones, it was near as good. <laughs> so it was, it was great. They just had this thing that appeared out of nowhere. And... Um, and that was amazing. And then Damon and I spent, I think it was five days, just like two sort of rutting rams at each other's heads trying to get the vocal right. Because Damon was writing lyrics to the original guide vocal. And um, I was adamant that it had to scan exactly the same as the original guide vocal which of course is incredibly difficult to sort of like try and put a lyric which means something and isn't and isn't really trite to something which is basically just a melody with which is sung with gibberish but has a great sound and has a great rhythm so it was really really hard and he just worked his ass off and and uh and i was just like this immovable object saying no it's not good enough it's not good enough and he just kept redoing it and redoing it and redoing it doing it and um and it drove him absolutely mad but he did a fantastic job and he ended up with this great lyric and a great performance on top of this song which was so it's like reverse engineering the song almost it was it was um but i love doing stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah it was, it was good yeah how does the way that you experiment with a band at that stage in their career compare to you know, say a band on their debut, like, I mean, you did the Horrors debut, didn't you? I did, yeah. Um, I did sort of half of it. Um, weirdly, the Horrors one was was quite similar. I mean, most bands, most bands on their debut, it's, it's by the time they get to me, they sort of have all the songs almost set in stone. And it's quite hard to get them to change stuff. Um, but with the, because they're their first set of songs that they've written, usually. Um, it's that old story of like you have your your whole life to write your first album and second album you got to do in six months. So it's like you, so the first albums it's often quite quite organised already and quite the songs are quite are quite um, accomplished already. Uh, the horror stuff they'd done um, they hadn't been a band for that long when I worked with them and um, I had a hilarious meeting with the A and R guy who um, I was in the studio working with a with a singer called Kathy Davy and he sort of like can I come and show play this band it's really important I've got to do it really quickly it's like yeah you can come to the studio but you know we're working and of course he turned up like two hours late 
and then kicked classic A and R. Yeah, the whole <laughs> band. It wasn't even his band. You know, it was like he kicked the whole band out of the studio. So it was very important that he had to play me this stuff, and nobody could hear it. And he turned up with this CD with a like, he put it in because it was like in those days. CDs, and he put the CD in the CD player. He got everybody out of the room. It was just me and him in the room. And I, he put the CD, and it came up with had like fourteen tracks. I was like, "Oh right, this is gonna take ages." And he hit play, and there was just like this squalling, shouting feedback came came out of the, out of the speakers, and uh, just no, it's just like intense noise. And then he hit stop. And he went, "What do you think?" <laughs> I was like. Yeah, I'm liking it so far. <laughs> he's like, that's the bit. So he said, they've been in the studio. That's the bit I like. <laughs> so I was like, right. He went, he went I need you to, um, I need like, three new songs. Um, and because I, I think I was free the next week or something like that, or the week after. I need three more songs and you've got like two weeks to do it. I was like, right. Okay, and, he, and, he, and I said, "Well, can I have that CD?" But no, no, that's all I'm going to play you. <laughs> <laughs> I went, "Have they got any songs?" He went, "I don't know." <laughs> and I was like, right, okay. Anyway, I've got to go. <laughs> so, so we went. We went in the studio a couple of weeks later in the pool, and um, and they sort of. I, think, I don't think I met them before we went in either. I can't remember. I think they just turned up, and um, they sort of turned up in dribs and drabs over a couple of days. <laughs> So, uh, it wasn't until day three where I had them all in the same room together in our first five-day session. And um, and so we just sort of started, and I said, have you got any songs? I went, no. So right, okay, well, let's just do some stuff. Let's start writing. Let's start writing. So they sort of, um, and the drummer wasn't there on the first day, so I sort of made this, I've been, I've got this weird um, old electroharmonics thing which is called a Clockworks, which is basically just a clock generator. And I used to use that with... Um, with synths with modular synths or with with um sequences and stuff and you can keep everything in time with that so and i and i'd been i'd had this idea that i wanted to build a mechanical drum kit out of it so i thought right well we'll do this that, that'll get us started so um i sort because of, it's quite sort of kraut rocky and uh, and psyche so we so i used this thing which basically just it it generates a pulse then it has four outputs and you can divide the pulse out of, different, out of each output so you have one pulse that's you know going at 16s then you can chop it down it comes out of fours and you know whatever and then you can have it coming around in different lengths you, know, you can have fives and threes and it's all on faders and it's a bit weird a bit difficult to control um so i took all the different outputs of these clocks and put them through speakers that were on drums <laughs> So you had, I mean, this 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 came from um, it's an old mixing trick where, which originally started when if you recorded the snare drum and somebody hadn't put an under snare mic on it, or you'd recorded the snare drum without the snares on, and the mix engineer decided they needed more snare, what you could do is you could put an aura tone on the snare drum, on a snare drum with the snare mic how you wanted it, and then you could send a gated version of the snare through that aura tone, and turn it up loud enough, and it would act as a as a effectively as a stick hitting the, the skin that would excite the snare and so you could add more snare onto the drum and it's an old trick that people would use um and so i thought well i'll use this click generator to be to send the signal to the speakers and i'll use the speakers to play the drums so we had like a bass drum with a guitar amp underneath it and a ns10 on a tom tom and aura tone on a snare drum and stuff like that and i think that was it and um and um and so we just got like a clicky thing going on and uh 
uh, and made it sound like a drum kit, but it was really this really super bonkers drum kit. And then, um, and then we had, I think I had the guitarist and I think I had Faris, the, the singer, and we just jammed some ideas on top of that. And we just, and, and I think I might've had the organ player as well. I can't remember. I can't remember who was there. It was, it was a long time ago. Uh, there was definitely a few of them and we were just playing ideas on top of that and then Faris would sort of like be there doodling away in his notebook and then every time when he liked something he sort of look up and nod at me I was like okay great carry on with that and we'd record a bit of that and then eventually he'd get some ideas for lyrics and we'd do some lyrics on top of it and the, the song sort of emerged and then we'd get the and that was that was one song in particular called Train Roars I think it's the last song on the first album has that drum machine on it that mechanical drum machine um and then we had more band the next day and we'd start with a full drum and then the drummer would play on top of the mechanical drum machine and stuff like that. And we, um, yeah, we, uh, and then we moved on from that idea and just used the full band and stuff like that. And it was very much like jamming down ideas, capturing them, them singing on top. So it was very, it was quite similar to the way the Blur record was written. And we ended up, I think, with five songs that we finished, or maybe seven. Um, I don't know if they all made the album, but they were... That's a lot in five days. Yeah, it was, but it was really, it was really exciting, and they were a really good bunch. They were, they, you know, they were very, um, they were really open to experiment. They weren't precious, which is great, because um, I think a, it's very difficult when you're a new band and you're recording your first album not to be really precious about it. But if you are really precious about it, that just limits everything, and it makes your life really hard, and it doesn't make it a very enjoyable process. Whereas this was like really exciting and really creative. So it was sort of. Um, yeah, so that was where the horror stuff came from. It was it was good fun. Yeah. We'll make it a lot harder in the long run too if you're closed off from the get go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah, you're because you're always because you don't ever. Um, it takes you longer to realise what good results you can get if you're more open. Why well, you've you've spoken about the idea once or twice before too that artists often hit their stride when they're around record three or four. Hmm and how that can be a little difficult in the modern music industry. I mean, Nadine Shazza was a good example of that too, if you look at what the last couple of records Absolutely. of hers have been like, that you really see it kind of broadening out. Yeah, I mean, weirdly, that was my plan for the whole project. Um, I'm Did you see that from the get-go? I, I, I said from the very beginning of that thing, because one of the... One of the ideas with with Nadine was because it was a very early. Like I said, I wasn't a writer when I started working with her, and um, and I wanted to. It was at that point where albums were in decline, and artists were very much were really struggling to get more than one record, um, the chance to do more than one record, and it was, and I just really felt that you know all my, a lot of my favourite bands didn't. You know, their first records were rubbish, and the this in the second record was uh, had suffers from that really difficult second record thing, and then and then record three, you're actually beginning to get the confidence and beginning to do stuff that's interesting and beginning to grow into yourselves. You know, first records can be great, but they're always slightly limited by the fact that you that you you're new to it, and um, um, so my idea was was that well. I think the phrase I use is like, we won't do anything till album four. You know, album four is when we when we will hit our stride. We will. That's when we need to be. That's when this project needs to be judged. Is what was what I sort of was my approach to it. And um and so I was really happy for album one to be very odd and and um 
and disjointed and sort of um, more of a sort of glimpse of what could be. And then album two with Nadine was much more um, was much more focused. It was more, um, and we was very quick. We wrote that really, really fast. Uh, and it was very much at the point where we'd suddenly sort of thought, right, okay, we can actually write songs. Because the first record was emerged over a couple of years of us just kind of like trying to work out what we were doing. And then because we never knew that anyone would ever release it or even listen to it. And so the fact that some people had actually listened to it and some people even liked it was, it was quite it was quite a revelation. You know, like, wow, that's, that's interesting. Um, so the second record was, was, was much more confident and we were very... We were very um, particular to write, to do it quick. It was sort of like, right, we go in the studio, we'll write a song and we'll go out again. When, so we, so I had a programming room next to the pool at this point. Um, up in, I was still living in London. We had a programming room next to there. It was a tiny little room, and we'd go in and we'd spend like two or three hours on a song. You know, the the we'd there'd be an idea. I'd either have an idea or maybe you know, as I explained before. We'd start, we'd both be in a room, bosh, do it really fast, bash it out. And then once we'd got enough songs written, we went, I was still wary of being a record producer writing, uh, being a record producer in a band. I didn't want it to be a record producer band, if you know what I mean. I didn't want the, the song. Where it gets a little bit too technical. Yeah, I didn't want it to be like a bunch of studio tricks holding the songs together. Um, so to avoid that on the first record and on the second record we took we we demoed everything and then we recorded both records completely live <laughs> um, so I said I got a bunch of musicians in who most of which are still in the band um, and we went in the pool and we played all the songs live and that was the recording and it was sort of like um so the first two records were done like that the, the well the the band half of the first record the first record is half piano and half band the piano half we recorded in a in a warehouse in newcastle <laughs> um, with a with this massive warehouse because we wanted this it was a curtain warehouse or something wasn't it yeah that's right so her dad runs a curtain company and they he just bought this new warehouse and he didn't have anything in it so it was sort of um so this massive empty warehouse so before he was allowed to move any curtains in we, we went in and and recorded half of Nadine's album in there. It was brilliant because it was this enormous industrial space, so it didn't have a nice um, tuned acoustic like a like a church or a or a concert hall. It was just this clanky kind of rattly, boomy space, and um, it was perfect for what we wanted. We wanted just sort of something a bit ugly and a bit kind of um, messy, and it worked really well. Um, yeah, so that's how we did the first two records, and then the third record. By that point, I'd moved out of London and I'd built a, um, a studio in the countryside, the Straw Bale Studio. And so we we started off doing it the same way and demoing all the stuff in there. But, but I just loved the sound of the studio because we hadn't actually built a live room down here at that point. I had a big control room. It was all made of straw bale, so it was really sort of dead and clear. Um, and I was really enjoying all the sounds that were coming out. And I I bought this ridiculous drum kit with a 26 inch bass drum and I was playing it in this really dead room uh, in the control room and it sounded brilliant. And so I was like, well, this is great. And Nadine wanted to have a poppier sound. She wanted poppier in a 
more produced sense. Um, she wanted to have a, you, you know, a, a, a not just that I sort of lay, sort of lumbered her with this sort of live sound <laughs> for the first two records. She was like, please, can I have some keyboards? <laughs> please, can I? <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, please got my record sound like other people's. It's all right. Um, <laughs> Um, so we we ended up using a lot of the recordings of the demo in, in much the same way that I had done on the Blur record and things like that. So um, on Holiday Destination, it was much more, we'd used the, the demo stuff a lot more and it was more, and, it, and as a result, it was more me playing. There was more of the musicians on that on that record than the last record, but because a lot of it had come from the demo and a lot of the performances and the sound to what I wanted, we ended up using quite a lot of the of the demo stuff on the. You know, we we got um, Neil McCollin and and Ben Nichols in to play the, the the bass parts and guitar parts where I felt that my performance wasn't good enough, which is quite often, um, and Pete. Obviously, Pete would play the Pete Warren would play the sax, but everything else was kind of like the demo stuff, um, and that worked really well. And I was really happy with how that record came out, and it did well. You know, it got the Mercury nomination, all that sort of stuff. So, um, and so then, and, and then it sort of just sort of came to pass that record four was the one where we were at this point where it was like I, I felt a little bit like record three we were like one record ahead of ourselves, but record four it was. Sort of yeah this is the one where we're really confident we're really I was much more confident with my songwriting I felt like a proper songwriter at last I felt like I could play the instruments well enough Nadine felt like she was really in command with her lyric writing and really in control of it and she was really doing stuff that was you know she was confident and had a swagger to it which was fantastic um, and the two of us felt like we were writing songs much better so um, we did all of record uh, record four down here in the in the farm. We had live room by that point as well, which was quite nice. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about her as well is that a lot of her most compelling, you know, lyric writing is touching upon that life beyond thirty, which she wouldn't have been able to do obviously on the first record. Yeah, exactly. And it was a thing that that she, you know, it was a thing. I wouldn't say it bothered her, but it was a thing that I think any female getting older. It, it, I think anyone in the music industry, it's, it's quite an ageist industry from a performer standpoint. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's ridiculous. And um, I quite, yeah, I, I quite enjoy the fact that with Nadine, we have, you know, there's, there's um, definitely some of us in our 50s, or if not more, in the band. <laughs> but they're great players, you know. Uh, we've got some, you know, some of the older guys are, are just such good players. Why would we have anybody else? But yeah, it is. It, it you do get people saying um, saying not not any. It's never punters. It's always industry who, who have an issue with that. I don't think people care. No, I, it, yeah, exactly. I think people watching the music, they're like, this is great. They don't care whether it's if, if you're honest and upfront about it, and everyone and you're playing music you want to play, playing music they like, and they they love it. I mean, it was like we. I was in Spain a couple summers back and saw Suede perform live, <laughs> and you. Had a crowd there of you know complete mix of age ranges and everyone was loving it and i mean i mean you're touring with them later on in the year but they're yeah 50s probably now yeah yeah them yeah they're my age i mean i i've got a 
I mean, I, I engineered two of their records when I was an engineer back in the 90s. So it's sort of, we, uh, we go a long way Come back. full circle. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be quite interesting to be back and hang out with them again. Yeah, so uh, it'd be nice to see them all. Yeah, and they, and you know, they're probably playing better now than they ever have done. He's incredible live, like his stage presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's a wonderful performer. He's a great musician, actually. Really good. He's a really good guitarist. His feel is fantastic. Are, are there any parallels in the challenges of starting and finishing a record? Yes. There's, um, I think, they're very different points in the record. I think the 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 beginning of of a recording, like starting the recording of a record, you want people to be as open and as creative as possible, um, and you want sort of um, you want a spark, you want things to happen, and um, and then by the time you get to the end of the record, you want it to be focused. So you want a kind of a messy start <laughs> where anything can happen, and then at the end. Uh, this is the best way I like it anyway. And then at the end, you want to reach this focus where it's very clear what's what's in the process and what isn't. And so by the time you get to the... I like, I like the record. By the time you get to the mixing, you want to have explored stuff and you want to have got to this point. I, I like to work... So I like to track with sounds as close to finished as possible. I like to record things with full effects and a compression and EQ and everything like that. I don't... I, I, my attitude is that they have the musicians there and if they're they're performing to a sound it should be as close to a finished sound as it as it can be because that will inform the performance and you want their if it turns out to be the wrong sound then it's probably the wrong performance and they can play again you know there's not there's nothing wrong with playing stuff again that's absolutely fine if it's if you're changing the sound and making things more interesting then that's what you should be doing then you know if you're refining stuff that's that's really good so i really don't mind committing sonically and committing um performance wise knowing that it's really easy to do it again and the same comes to like vocal performances and everything like that i like to get vocals done early i don't like to finish songs before the vocals are done because i think you need to finish the song around the vocal because it's the main as soon as you start singing on it everything changes so um having a final vocal performance not at the end of the, the recording process is quite important so yeah it's, it's like a it's like a a process of refinement and focus and that starts from being no focus to being or, or, or very very broad focus being getting everything to sit right Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.